0: Welcome to Happy Hour, a part of the SJV CEO, PodEE Network, where we are zero carbon, 100 proof. Sometimes the best way to nerd out over energy is to grab your friends, sit them down around a table, and ask all of the questions you think you're supposed to know. On our version of Happy Hour, you can expect everything that you would from getting together with your colleagues and friends. Libations, laughter, and a whole lot of chaos.
1: In which that is an option too. It just reduces the amount of time that we have to talk. So I'm willing to.
2: I'd go either way. Okay. I'm Kind of just like <laughs> ready to get this over and go straight to the bar.
3: Yeah. Okay. Fair, Fair enough.
0: I would have to agree with Lou okay. on that one.
4: Yeah. Let's let's keep moving.
3: Okay. Yeah, agreed. Also, if you gave me a cocktail, I would definitely tinker with it. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> <no, no. laughs> well. There would be ice glittering be good. A good point. Yeah, okay. Definitely not a word.
1: Yes, no, I'm Courtney Bloor Kalation, the executive director of the San Joaquin Valley Clean Energy Organization. Today we're recording live at the SEEK Forum. We're coming off a fresh panel with a guest, Lou Jacobson. Lou is a. Shit, I don't even know what you do, Lou.
2: I'm a. So, I'm a Will Dan employee. I manage pg Needs government K-12 program we provide energy efficiency services to local governments throughout their territory.
1: So what Lou did is he called me up one day and he said he wanted to put this panel together for SEEK and he gave me this idea and I said, I will have nothing to do with this, but I think it's a great idea. So Lou, let's talk about why you wanted to create a dystopian future of, uh, you know, just horribly awful things that could potentially happen to our rural and disadvantaged communities if we don't bring them along through building decarbonization and electrification.
2: So in all honesty, the, the idea of um Emerged out of my work with the California um, Community of Choice Aggregator years and years ago, and what we were seeing is that kind of the, the rich urban folk, and this is in rural Humboldt County, um, were more likely to invest in solar and storage. And we started like with a few staff members and I, we were talking about, you know, how if interventions weren't introduced, what you would find on the road is, you know, grid instability and your your you know. Rich communities being kind of isolated and gated, and everybody else kind of just left with rolling blackouts, and you know what that would actually do from an economic perspective, and frankly from a political perspective. And this was all, you know, just having fun saying from a from a program perspective, if this is an eventuality, how do we how do we mitigate that? Um, and so this had been in my mind for years and years and years, not because it will happen, just because it was an idea that we used to inform program design. Um, and so when C came online early in 22, um, I just thought, well, this might be a fun idea to play with. And the idea evolved, right? And so the, the concept was there, right? There's this dystopian future coming. What is it? We know Um, The climate emergency is now, it's present, but it's only gonna get worse down the road. Um, What does that dystopian future look like? Well, I think you could shake that out in a lot of different ways, right? One I just described. Um, Another is where um, we simply don't address climate change. And, you know, that future is very, very bleak. Um, And so this dystopian future really manifests in, in many different ways, right? And so the idea of my job on a daily basis albeit I, I i do work for will dan but what i embrace in this is meaningful change for the communities that i'm serving um, and that meaningful change manifests itself through electrification and so our program in q4 of 21 really pivoted hard to building electrification on the public space And we started running into a lot of barriers um, and how we communicated to our stakeholders, how we um, worked with varying partners and how we took on large scale projects. So we really focused in on heat pump water heaters and and frankly, it's working really, really well. I compare it to the CFL of building electrification. It's turnkey, it's easy, it's easy to get out there. The market wants it. However, when you start looking at more complex building systems, um, HVAC, um, boilers, hydronic heating, um, swimming pool, electrification, it is incredibly challenging to get done. And that was really the genesis of this panel, saying, look, you know, we could do these widgets. It should work. It is working. But once we get past the widget and we really look at the building from a comprehensive perspective, um, we really... Are having you know there's really a significant challenge in how we approach the situation um, both from a technical perspective and from a financial perspective and so that was the fundamental genesis of this panel and I really wanted to take more of a comprehensive approach where we're talking policy we're talking about how codes and standards fit in what utilities are doing and then how that you know fits within services to those who are hardest to reach
1: so Lou Let's talk about the idea of getting the right panelists to the table. Because we could have just put you in front of a room for 75 minutes and let you do just that. But I think you recognize as well as I recognize that nobody wants to sit and listen to either of us for an extended period of time, right? So you decided there were some very particular points that needed to be hit on. What was the first one that you knew had to be incorporated in this conversation? Well,
2: we have to take a national perspective. And frankly, I wish we could have taken a global perspective, right? And I think that's really where we should start. Um, but we had to take that national policy perspective. And so looking outward, of course, um, E3 is really a leader in that space. And
1: So if E3 is a leader in space and you were able to get E3 to come to the table, so is this a good time for us to ask for Jesse to introduce herself?
3: This is Jesse Kenapstein. I work with Energy and Environmental Economics, also known as E3. I work primarily on our Climate Pathways Distributed Energy Resources groups. So we focus a lot on broad-scale decarbonization. As Lou mentioned, we span the entire uh, North America, entirety of North America. So we have offices in uh, San Francisco and New York and all through Canada as well. And we work with a number of jurisdictions on figuring out how to decarbonize their grid and, uh, you know, buildings and transportation sector economy-wide perspective from now to 2050.
1: Is it a requirement that all employees of E3 have amazing jewelry choices, or is that just yours? Just mine. Okay. Also, this is like an audio medium, so it's really hard for people to understand that you've got a giant silver leaf that is on a thick silver chain, and it's beautiful. People should know that. Oh, Oh! we'll have to catch it on the video later. I love it. It's also magnetic. (laughs) That is so cool. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so what? Oh, oh sorry. Come back. Mm-hmm. Okay, Lou, so you got the policy piece together. You have E3 at the table. What was the next piece that you knew you needed to incorporate when it came to this conversation?
2: so for better or worse in school this hourglass model always came to mind right which is like you start at the high level you look at the broad picture and you slowly move down into the waist of that hourglass and that's really where you get down to that action right so putting the panel together i really wanted to look at it through that lens and so as you as you move from kind of the national perspective into kind of the state policy perspective to me the obvious next choice was codes and standards Uh, Codes and standards plays a huge role here in California, not only um, with our our builders throughout the state, but also how energy efficiency programs are implemented in the intersect between codes and standards and energy efficiency uh, funded through the PUC. What I do want to point out is I really didn't want to reach out to the Energy Commission. Frankly, I didn't know if they would even say yes. Um, But I didn't necessarily want that perspective. I wanted somebody who was living and breathing the work and also trying to communicate and educate the building community and and frankly the whole community on what codes and standards looks like, why it's important, and where it fits in.
1: And since Misty Berseri was not available, you decided the next best option was Jordan Garballo? Oh,
2: I went straight to Jordan.
1: (laughs) That's a choice.
4: (laughs) Uh, Jordan Commodore Garballo uh, with the County of San Luis Obispo and the Tri-County Regional Energy Network or 3C REN. Um, I primarily manage the codes and standards program for the Tri-County REN and um, that is affectionately called Energy Code Connect. Um, But as Lou said, I really focus on educating and supporting our building professionals on both the public sector and private sector sides of the coin. Uh, to make sure that they have what they need to be successful in um, energy code, as well as Calgary and building standards, which nobody's really talked about much today, but uh, it's, it's, it's another like small piece of our pie.
1: Okay, so you've got the policy, you've got the code. Where do you go from there?
2: So in my mind, you go to the utility space, right? And so I did reach out to um, the PUC. My hope was like, hey, let's get the PUC to say something about utility-funded programs. Why? So the Public Utility Commission um, is the effective administrator of IOU programs or investor-owned uh, utility programs. You're
1: taking this very seriously. Why would you invite the CPUC to the I party? wouldn't,
2: I mean, because, because well, first off, I wanted people in the room, right? And, you know, it doesn't matter who you have, right? If it's like Public Utilities Commission, folks are gonna be like, oh, maybe I should listen to them. Um, secondarily, I was hoping, hey, maybe we could get the utility perspective, right? So. Once we got there saying, well, we need the utility perspective, Um, SoCal Edison came online. It was kind of happenstance where SoCal Edison um, decided to attend the conference. And I had the opportunity of onboarding them to the panel. And to me, it just made sense, right? We need some utility representation. They play a significant part in building electri- electrification, whether it's through the e- the energy efficiency programs or through other programs they're implementing. Um, so having a utility um, sit at the panel was hugely important. And frankly, I wish I could have had more representation across the investor-owned utilities.
1: For the purposes of our recording, we don't actually have the utility representative with us, we lost them along somewhere uh, on the path to this room, but it's okay, they were there for this conversation. Um, Lou, once you got utilities, once you got policy, once you got your second choice for code, uh, where did you go and how did you decide who you were going to bring to this panel?
2: All right. So keep in mind, right? Working on this hourglass, starting at a high level, slowly working in. Right? Utilities are kind of subservient to codes and standards in many ways within their programs. I really wanted to go to the boots on the ground. Right? How does this stuff impact that ratepayer um, receiving that service or trying to do something? And so, this whole conference was really focused on um, equity, inclusion. And so we could talk about urban ratepayers and how we deliver services to urban ratepayers, but I really felt that I was going to miss the point of this conference, right? Because we have these big donut holes in services, or at least we suspect we do. And where those donut holes are suspected and known to some degree are in hard to reach communities that are geographically distant from urban centers and disadvantaged communities. And so that really led me to the question of who do I know who could really articulate the challenges we're facing in serving hard to reach communities, disadvantaged communities, uh, from a building electrification perspective.
1: Oh, I know somebody.
2: I do too. Does
1: the person work for me? Maybe. Maybe.
0: Hey, who's that? (laughs) It's Rochelle Butler, energy manager with the San Joaquin Valley Clean Energy Organization. I feel like I've been saying that a lot today. (laughs) Um, But basically, energy manager is just a really fancy way of saying, I deal with data. as an organization we provide energy services and technical assistance and all of that good stuff to um, public sector customers for the most part um, to help them just execute these energy efficiency projects and you know help (laughs) helping lou essentially like you know roll out these heat pump water heaters and bring them along on this journey that we all find ourselves on
1: so I really appreciate Rochelle's inclusion, um, because we like to get ourselves out there as much as possible. And in this way, we don't have to pay for free cocktails. Uh, but I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about how this panel rounded out was that you know we look at the public sector. Yeah, we talk and deal at the community level, and we serve communities, but we don't actually go into people's homes, and we don't change people's lives where they live. And I think what you did when you finished everything up with this last panelist, as you did that quite nicely. What was the thought in including somebody that worked in the residential space with actual homeowners? So
2: GRID Alternatives is well known for their work um, in the residential sector, um, particularly in underserved communities. Um, And immediately as the the panel came together, I knew that I wanted GRID um, so I actually reached out to an old colleague of mine um, with GRID and said, hey, do you want to jump on? He's like, I don't know if I can, but I know this other guy who's probably a really great fit for you, and he introduced me. I guess there's another number two,
5: Jordan. So <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Jaime Alonzo. I'm the executive director for GRID Alternatives Inland Empire uh, region. Our region covers all of uh, San Bernardino, Riverside, and Inyo counties. Um, Uh, We're a national organization. We have offices throughout the state of California, including Colorado and the Mid-Atlantic region, and a growing international program in uh, Nicaragua, uh, Baja California, and Nepal. Um, Happy to be here. So,
1: Lou, you put together uh, a heck of a team, right? So, I think one of the things that's really important that we cover was when you said you were going to do this panel, you also told me nobody was going to come. How many Did people? Yeah, you were like, nobody's coming to this. It's going to be you and like other people, okay. and you're going to have to be a plant in the room, <laughs> and you're going to have questions. And I believe you actually were going to give us questions that we have to ask. Uh, how many people do you think were in that room, Lou? Um,
2: I'm not very good with, with estimating numbers. I'm going to say 60 to 70.
1: I'm going to say more than that, and we actually took pictures, so we're going to end up counting um, how many people were in that room.
2: It was 3,000.
1: Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, it was it was audience like epic crowd arena type situation, standing room only for sure. Um, you guys did wonderfully. So I think the first thing I want to ask each of you is, how did you feel? I'm gonna say this. Rochelle said at the end of it, we wanted to leave the audience with hope. I'm gonna be honest. I don't know that you all left the audience with hope. But I want to know, what do you think you did leave the audience with? And whoever wants to start that, please feel free. Go.
2: Um, so my hope was, yes, to leave some hope, right? But, but to also leave the audience with more questions than they walked in there with, right? Um, my expectation was that they were never going to get the answers they wanted. The content's too thick. Um, but they need to know where to start. They need to know there's a room full of people trying to resolve the same issues. They need to meet those individuals and they need to form those networks to have those conversations offline. So the hard work for everybody that attended starts now I and mean, everybody's already doing it. Um, but I never was under the expectation that we were gonna resolve anything. Um, perhaps I missed the mark a little bit on the hope thing. I agree with Rochelle, I was hoping to, but um, it's a big lift. And I think that came came across in the presentation.
5: Uh, I would say that I think what I kind of took away from it is that we're, we're still very much in the middle of this transition of building electrification. And so, you know, my sense was that there's a lot of sort of anxiety around it, a lot of feelings of how do we get this right? Um, so I think, you know, to Lou's point, I think more questions, um, and we're kind of still in the middle of um, this, this novel. Um, and I think we'll see how, um, everything shakes out at the end um, and what that looks like. Um, but I think there's just a lot of uncertainty and just more questions and answers at this point.
4: I would uh, add that I think in the spirit of what this forum really is and what we're all doing here, the, the note that um, Lou had around networking and, and the spirit of collaboration, that's kind of what I wanted to impart on folks Um, and also just to let them know that they're not alone right there's a lot of people around here doing this work um, a lot of people across the state and most importantly I would say that there's a lot of resources uh, you know uh, around especially my my area of focus which is codes and standards that there's just a a, a dearth of knowledge and um, support around that that and uh, to just steal and rip off and whatever you can uh, to make these programs accessible and available to folks I think is important.
0: One of my goals in the topics that I chose to bring to light was what we try to do every day as an organization and that's to give a voice to rural and hard to reach and and disadvantaged communities and so there are a lot of issues that arise that are unique to those communities that people that don't live in those communities tend to talk around and so it was very important to me to be very blunt and very honest about about those things and sort of bring awareness to them because this is not the last transition that's going to happen you know we're the only thing that's constant about change is change. Did I say that right? Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, one, of, one of my things is to, I've grown up in these communities, I've always lived in them, I've never lived anywhere else, and so it's an issue that's very close to my heart, and I wanna make sure that they come along, if you will.
3: Yeah, maybe I'll just piggyback on the idea that we are very much in the beginning of this novel. And I think one of the things that a lot of folks, at least from my perspective and where I was coming from, one of the things that a lot of folks in that room maybe took away was that the policymakers and the regulators are are aware of these issues. They haven't solved them yet, and we're still very much working on them but I think there were a number of points made. We can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. We have to start this transition now. We're talking about infrastructure changes that take a long time, and so we have to start now. We're gonna trip over our own two feet a little bit, but we need people to participate in the conversation. So the fact that they were there and asking questions and we maybe gave them some more avenues to knock on some doors, I think is a good thing and a little hopeful maybe.
4: Uh, one, one thing I just want, or two things actually to note, uh, Rochelle, uh, in your presentation, uh, and I have it also written very big on my brand new white bulletin board is a- around propane, uh, and that issue. I'm probably stepping on one of your questions, Courtney, but super huge, uh, especially in rural communities and something that I'm very keen on, uh, trying to solve, um, locally for us, but, uh, in the immediate around the state, right? Uh, and also, um your favorite dystopian film, uh, The Matrix, I would say it's not dystopian. We are actually living in it right now. Okay? So just keep that in mind.
0: So we're all really batteries, and yeah. our... <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make we sure. I'm
4: going to get, get, the get
0: us
1: back on this, so let's talk about this for oh, a God. second. Um, I asked the question in the panel, and Jesse, I thank you for taking it on. When we talk about the propane conundrum the propane consideration the propane question right we have to phrase this differently everywhere we go every single time propane gets brought up it gets ignored and I don't know if it's because we're having this conversation amongst energy efficiency practitioners and we all go "Mm, that's not CPUC they don't regulate that so we're not going to talk about it we have to start tackling propane as an issue for our rural communities because they exist on it and they live on it. Um, I know this is an issue that we all deal with, whether it is in you know the Sierra, whether it's in the high desert, whether it is in the San Joaquin Valley or in the Central Coast. I'm curious from all of the panelists, Lou, you too, um, How do we start tackling it? Like, how do if it is not regulated by our regulatory body under which we all work, how do we start tackling this?
2: I'll take a a quick stab, and I'll I'll start with um, rural communities, rural communities that live in CCA territory uh, or community choice aggregators. So there is, I think, um, a an economic argument. For community choice aggregators to look at fuel substitution, um, they're increasing their rate base, um, and so you know it, it would CCAs could consider doing that analysis and finding out, hey, what's our break-even point? Um, because if CCAs could incentivize outside of utility-funded programs, right, which is a whole other story, um, that would give communities a different path towards um, achieving the same end, right, where um, stakeholder groups, implementers, um, the private sector, the public sector can come together and say, let's solve this um, propane challenge. Um, now, clearly CCAs don't exist in all rural communities out there, and so there needs to be other interventions out there, right? But I think a part of the puzzle is, is lies with them to see whether or not we can gain momentum. Um, the other side is just really fundamentally taking um, what Jesse was saying to heart. I, I, one of the big barriers I see is where the money's coming from when we talk uh, iou programs right so the money's being collected on a uh, public purpose program surcharge on natural gas and so i think there is this inherent question of should somebody who's not paying into that surcharge um, receive that subsidy on the backside? and um, i have my personal opinions but i think that really needs to be discussed um, at the state level because we talk about let's say total system benefit for the grid on activities um, we can talk about total climate benefit for decarbonizing and those ratepayers paying into that public purpose program are going to receive a benefit um, from delivering that measure to um, you know, you know, a non-IOU fuel source project, mm-hmm. propane related project. So I, I think those conversations really need to be brought to the forefront to, to what Jesse was saying about the greenhouse gas. Um, Adder and how we look at this problem from a higher level, mm-hmm. um, not just down to these key metrics.
1: I'm going to ask Jordan to translate that into non Lou language, and how does that go and work in the field?
4: So, as as Lou was espousing these also, beautiful but terms, I just want to say
1: we all appreciate Lou's giant brain. This is not a knock on his brain, all. but we know we have to translate, right?
4: The, the smartest man I know right is what i often say about true mr dr jacobson i'm going to call him Uh, how many in on this podcast have been on propane that bill sucks (laughs) big time in in the winter when you're filling that tank it is the worst
1: we should say because nobody can see us raise our hands jordan yes they can (laughs) we don't know if we're gonna gonna use that
4: Say, I, if you, I don't know, just, <laughs> two, two people raised their hands. Two, three, three, I've uh, been, okay. I've also, so I've four, been, actually. So four hey. people in this room have been on propane. And I, I can imagine when winter comes and you're paying three, four hundred dollars to fill that tank, depending on the size, it's significant. And it's so volatile in terms of the amount of money you're putting into that tank just to keep your house warm, just to dry your clothes, just to heat your water. So the reality is, is that there, is, there are not incentives around it yet. Yet, I, I have faith that that is going to change uh, in the near future because we're talking about it now. There's, 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 there's conversations growing around it uh, more and more. But the reality is, is that until you explain to somebody that compared to natural gas, in terms of the cost as well as the 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 greenhouse gas potential for that fuel, you're not going to get people to understand and push forward on anything like that because there's not as many in in uh, affluent urban settings that are on that fuel to push the needle. Everything's in rural and as we've always discussed, rural gets the 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 the, 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 the end of the stick or whatever the phrase is it's it's a real com- complication and we're trying to fix that and find solutions for it and i think that's where somewhat where Lou was going
1: so i want to just change the topic of conversation here One note, when you're talking, please talk at your microphone. I know our conversational skills are to try to make eye contact with each other. Um, If you need to, look past your mic at Kelsey and just know that she's listening intently to everything you're saying. Okay, awesome. Um, I mean, you said something when you introduced yourself, which is we have to get this right. And I think there is an emotion behind that sentiment that everybody is going to interpret their own way. If we don't get this right, we risk a number of detrimental outcomes. Talk to me about why it's important to you and to those communities and the people that you serve that we have to get this right.
5: Sure. So I think it really comes down to equity. And what that really boils down to is who bears the burden and who benefits. Um, and Making sure that those that experience the most compounding impacts from rising costs, cost of living, um, need to really benefit from this transition. Um, otherwise, they're going to be left relying on uh, gas infrastructure that is going to be continually outdated. Um, and they're going to continue to carry those increased price pressures. And so it's going to have a compounding effect. Um, and so being mindful of those who can most benefit and are most in need has to be part of the equation when it comes to these policy solutions and incentives.
1: And Jesse, when we say we have to get this right, is there a single piece of policy or thought work that you're looking at where you say, yeah, we're getting it right here? or? Is there something that's the inverse of that, where you say, we are missing the big picture on this?
3: So I think the conversation we were just having around putting the overall intent first is really important. So we have all of these on the ground regulations, rates, policies, historical ways of doing things. And I think we're finally coming to the realization that we shouldn't change the program to fit the regulation, we should change the regulation to fit the program. And the new program is Greenhouse Gas Emissions Reductions. That's what it is, let's just call a spade a spade. And so I think putting that metric first and foremost in a lot of our calculations around energy efficiency, right, which has historically been about energy reduction, is extremely important. Um, and that's starting to happen in some places, incrementally, and it's I think it will that will drive huge change. I think one of the areas when Jaime was just talking, all I could think about was where we're currently getting it wrong. And this transition is going to be a delicate process to manage because there are sort of tipping points where the burden of the natural gas system, the cost burden of the natural gas system ends up on very few customers, right? If we're talking about electrifying, how do you balance that cost? Because right now our rate structures do not support that transition at all. It was never designed to support that transition. And so there's been conversations, and I'm hoping these conversations will continue around fixed charge versus volumetric charge versus departing charges, and how do you balance that, especially in places where we don't have vertically integrated you know, gas and electric utilities that can sort of house it all under one roof. Um, and so yeah, I think that's an area that's currently we're getting it wrong and hopefully we'll continue to make progress on. So the transition to electrification
1: and decarbonization from my perspective watching this was really in the hands of those who for years have been working in energy efficiency there are a lot of things i think that we have gotten right in energy efficiency and we're still getting right there are a number of lessons that i don't know that we learned through energy efficiency and i want us to take a moment and think about if we're jumping from energy efficiency and we're looking at electrification are we necessarily the right people to be doing that and if we're not who should we be involving in this conversation so i guess i'll start with jordan jordan are we the right people to be leading this conversation Is energy efficiency practitioners or are energy efficiency practitioners the right natural progression towards electrification
3: job is on the line it's not really uh
4: so i i i do i do think we are but i i want to try to stay away from the idea that electrification means that ee is dead can you
1: take a minute and just really get into that because i'm going to say this no offense to the private sector friends sitting here next to me, but so much what we're hearing from industry is energy efficiency is dead. We just all need to walk away from it. And I refuse to believe that personally, right? I think that it's not. Tell me why they're wrong.
4: If we go and electrify the entire existing building stock, we're we're doomed, in my opinion, uh, just in terms of our grid capacity and how we're able to um, handle that uh the the real the the where the rubber hits the road right energy efficiency and updating our building stock to be closer to code or whatever metric you want to use is is increasingly important especially around electrification because because you're going to be increasing your load and i think the, the the corollary i make to that is what we used to always tell people around generation solar generation adding solar to your house that should be the last damn thing you do before you before you do any of it and it's, and it's similar to electrification you need to get your building tight you need to make sure that all of your appliances and all of your the, the low-hanging fruit and uh, and everything in the middle thinking about the pyramid is completed prior to uh, going full- on into a panel upgrade and a heat pump water heater swap with a natural gas water heater uh, it it it, it's something that I stress as much as I can to, to customers that we work with, uh, and it's what I, I am kind of trying to preach along the way. So it, I I think it's I think it's it's paramount and, and foundational to the principles of electrification. Uh, and and to answer your first question, I absolutely think we are the 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 people that should be working on this. We are we are the nerds. We are the energy nerds that are that are here continuously learning it. Three years ago, I went to the AC Triple conference in in uh, Silamar, uh, maybe four years ago now, and decarb and electrification was a like you talk about it in secret, and now it's like everywhere, and even SoCal Gas is on board. It, it's unbelievable how fast this has moved.
1: Lou, i want to turn the question to you. Are we the right people to continue doing this?
2: I think we are. I think there's a difference between defining energy efficiency in the way that Jordan was was defining it and actually implementing it within um, the investor-owned utility space, and and I'll expand on that. So, Mm -hmm. I I agree completely with with Jordan on on the loading order and and something that's called something like that, the California Loading Order. and so I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Jordan was saying. I think the difference in perspective often is um, associated with how we um, account for energy savings within IOU funded programs. And that's where I think folks are having this realization that the, the business as usual approach to delivering energy efficiency ser- services in contract with investor owned utilities in a way that is done cost effective for the ratepayers. Um, needs to be completely um, you know look, well let me say it differently it needs to be looked at very closely in that historically we would look at relatively easy measures to implement what i mean by that is effectively looking at lighting lighting is a big part of the load in existing buildings um, hvac is great but it's very costly um, and problematic. And, and, of course, there's indoor air quality implications and a bunch of other things, right? So what else do you have, right? You have the building shell, you've got fenestration, you've got refrigeration, you've got in, industrial processes um, that you can address. Um, but when you're, you're looking at delivering a significant amount of energy savings and you want to do it kind of at this time, you know, dependent variation, right? Um, the way we implement in this industry needs to change right because we can't just go out there and do lighting anymore and that's why coming back to our our energy efficiency practitioners the right folks to do this yeah i think we're a part of the solution particularly those of us that work with utilities but we have to look at the way we deliver results differently right and i think um, in our our panel right um i think jesse was you who brought up the um the three-prong test was Mm -hmm. that right Um, and so, so Jesse brought up this thing called three-prong test. I'm not going to go in, into it in great depth, but, but once that was resolved and electrification and fuel substitution could be internalized into IOU or investor-owned utility programs, it really changed the entire game. And we're just now seeing implementers out there beginning to embrace what fuel substitution looks like in historic energy efficiency programs, and it's complex. And I know those those implementers are working through it right now, um, and so it really, you know, to get those subsidies out the door, um, we do need the private sector, those implementers, and the investor-owned utilities to figure it out. How do we bring those subsidies to those ratepayers through historic EE programs? So, in in many ways, I think when we hear um, EE is dead, um, it's kind of like saying, well, you know. Yes, business as usual in that space is on its way out. We as an industry, and I'm speaking broadly there, need to reassess what the future of energy efficiency looks like within um, IOU funded programs.
3: Yeah, and maybe actually just to add to that, we are asking whether or not the energy efficiency implementers are the right people. And just to be clear, electrification is energy efficiency. You are gaining... You know, 70, 80 percent efficiency gain if we're just talking about BTUs and service demand when you transition, given the state of technology today, because the electric technology is using, you know, the air or the ground, what have you, to capitalize the and utilize that additional heat, uh, whereas the natural gas technology is maxing out in the 90 percentage points for efficiency, right? So, and I, I also think, just maybe to put another point in the camp for the current energy efficiency implementers is that the local context for all of these is as important, if not more important, than the energy efficiency program implementation. You know, Lou was just talking about how typically we've captured these low-hanging fruits and they historically have, especially compared to electrification, have been relatively easy. All of that context is going to become vital in this transition, and why throw that out? So, just one one last thing on that too, and just the,
4: the, just stressing the importance of of why RENs exist regional energy networks uh, and and in terms of cost-effective portfolios and how ee can still be ee not including electrification but talking about lighting and other measures are still practical because if we didn't have RENs, those people would be left behind frankly and that's why we exist to do those things that not a knock on, on Will Dan or investor-owned utility programs, but it's the reality, right? All of that cost-effectiveness portfolio garbage is, 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 <laughs> is complicated, right, and, and, and problematic for the people that are potentially left behind with still low-hanging fruit.
1: Well, and I think here's the thing. There is a world that can exist where we have RENs, because RENs are supposed to fill the gaps, right? And we can be innovative. I say we, rural REN being a proposed REN, but it's fine. Proposed, not yet approved. There's a world that exists where we have local utility programs and we have implementers like Wildean that are doing what needs to be done and RENs come in and fill those spaces, right? And so I think that there is space for both, and I think that there is a world where the Wildeans or other energy service companies are working with RENs the same way that they do with IOUs. It's just making that transition and getting people comfortable with it. And I think that that's the thing that I'm hearing in all of this is that we never really got comfortable in energy efficiency i think we maybe got complacent but i don't know that we got comfortable and what's happening now with electrification is requiring us all to get uncomfortable for sure i want to talk about who we'd be leaving behind and i think that that was a big piece of this panel that i that i appreciated because of the work that we do i mean the work that you do with grid alternatives is primarily in renewables and generation but you're in the customer at their home with them. You're a nonprofit. You are there for a community purpose to serve and to understand and to represent. Those communities that you work with, how do you see them transitioning? Do you see this on their radar? Is this beyond what they're capable of? There was an elected official in the audience who said, you know the biggest concern is people saying don't raise my rates i'm just trying to survive did that hit home with you
5: yeah i think it does i mean i think everyone hates bills and i think the, the bill that they hate the least is probably their gas bill right now um uh, for the most part um, i think um but you know because we're delivering an asset that's going to put money back into their pockets um they're pretty convinced early on and i think being in their homes seeing the conditions of their homes allows us to really um Uh, develop collaborative partnerships like we have partnership with cap riverside to provide um, energy efficiency related upgrades to uh, the homes that we work in Um, you know we um, do a lot of one out of every uh, three of our projects have a main service panel upgrade Um, we throw in um, an ev charger um, a lot of our um, projects, Uh, even if they don't have an EV, we're kind of setting them up for that, just kind of throwing that in as a cherry on top. Um, So just kind of looking for ways to, um, because we're there, we see, uh, looking for ways to both educate them about sort of the benefits of uh, improving the conditions of their home and also just making sure that our primary focus is on actual bill savings. Because again, what I mentioned in the panel is like really, focusing on what people's needs are, uh, as opposed to kind of articulating sort of the benefits of, um, everyone appreciates the benefits of cleaner air um, and kind of understands that, but really the conditions of their home, uh, what's gonna improve their overall quality of life and focusing on, on that, I think, um, and looking for ways to leverage opportunities to kind of um, create sort of enhanced value to the overall experience that we bring to the customer
1: everyone can we afford to do this
3: yes how so i think one of the things that we nobody really discussed in the panel and that only energy nerds think about are life cycle costs and from a life cycle cost perspective there's already today a lot of opportunities for savings so you know it's very much depends on local context and what the climate zone is and what the rates are and what have you. But there are opportunities today in California, 85% of single family homes could transition and they would, from a life cycle cost perspective, uh, you know, be saving money. Um, how you get that to them and how you tr- make sure that that message is received for them is a whole nother problem that we've been touching on right now. And there are also a huge portion of uh, other communities, right? The multifamily community, for example, has sees entirely different numbers. So for them, the vast majority of them couldn't see energy savings today unless you, you know, made some adjustments to how they're currently <laughs> utilizing their systems. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, yes, we definitely could.
1: Mm-hmm. If we were to do SEEK next year... And they asked you to do a follow-up for this panel. What is the follow-up conversation that we're having a year from now?
3: Great job on transitioning the way we said you should. So that's a lovely, (laughs)
1: idealistic future. Um, Let's try to stick with the reality of the dystopia theme here, Jesse, and say, realistically, we're sitting here and we'll be in Northern California because they flop around, right? So a year from now, we're in San Francisco or Sacramento. What are we talking about with the same group of panelists?
2: Okay, I'll jump in real quick because I need to clarify. Sacramento and San Francisco are central California. Um, So
1: actually, the central point of California, if anyone is curious, is actually in Madera County. And it is where there was a palm tree and a pine tree planted on the freeway. The, The pine tree burned down.
2: That's if you have the state, but if you break it into thirds, well, anyway. are we
1: doing like new California is this like is well this it's Jefferson for, like... State okay. no 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 right. so, oh, okay. so yeah. we can cut
2: <laughs> we'll cut that but, but you know the conversation that so if Steve if came to me and said Lou you know we'd like you to do a, a subsequent follow up um, what I'd want to do is really look at the state of affairs right because we know there's, there's a number of different barriers out there across a number of different spaces right and so we've got market barriers we've got um, supply chain disruptions, we've got reg- regulatory barriers in the IOU um, space, we've got consumer facing barriers, um, we've got infrastructure challenges, grid constrainment, new programs coming online like the market access program and really doing a refresh and saying okay we, we all know and agree that we need to make headway where last year what have we done mm-hmm. um, and take more of a focused approach of saying, okay, great. So we've seen this progression over the last year. Um, how do we accelerate that?
1: Mm-hmm. So, but what I'm asking you to do here is retiles. And I know that that's an uncomfortable position. Please stop moving your arms on the counter. Thank you. I'm asking you to read tea leaves and I'm asking all of you to do this. And I think here's the thing in the work that we do, we are never working in the time in which we existed, right? We're all operating a number of months, a number of quarters, or a year or more out from where we are. You know, one, how long do we have on this, right? Like, how long will we be? And I asked this question to Patrick how long am I going to be pimping heat pump hot water heaters for you? And his answer is three to five years. Okay, so we're gonna do that. But because we all work in a forward-looking space, we all can kind of see what our problems are gonna be. And we can all kind of say like a year from now, we're not gonna I'm not saying we're gonna nail this, right, you guys, but we can look forward and say, like, this is these are the pain points we see, and this is what we're gonna be talking about next year. This is what we're gonna be talking about in two years. What this is not a barrier question. This is a blockage issue, right? Like where are we getting held up? And, and what are we gonna be trying to talk to people about next year to make them understand that this is more dire now, because now we're a year later and we still haven't done certain things. So what what are those pieces? What does this conversation look like?
4: So just keeping it at a, at a code level, which is, uh, you know, super interesting to me, but just um, looking at where we've come from since the 2019 code to the 2020, or 2022, excuse me, uh, energy code implementation. We're on track uh, to effectively double the amount of all electric reach codes in the state by the beginning of 2023. Uh, So realistically, the, the, the cities, even even cities that are not you know that are considered quote unquote rural are implementing reach codes and not through the cec path through building ordinance or public health and safety ordinance which is fast-tracked and we've been so busy at least in the tri-county region have uh, almost more than doubled uh, the amount of reach codes in that territory surprisingly to us, which spurred us to develop a reach code support program. So I think that's one area we didn't really touch on um, during this panel, and I think it's something that is will be in dire need of an update, especially as data rolls through with the first year of, of um, code data coming through.
3: I, I actually see a lot of parallels in the transportation electrification initiatives that have been happening across the state with building electrification and i'm hoping that we will take learnings from that process and start to we first of all we can maybe leapfrog in the building electrification space based on what we know from the transportation electrification space which by the way is not going well and to answer your question about the when are we done so we are currently modeling e3 is for the california um, scoping plan, and they're planning to hit a 100% sales target for heat pumps in homes by 2035 and commercial buildings even after that. So we've got a while. Buckle up. Um, but I mean, that said, like, there currently we're seeing a lot of movement in the transportation space where we're targeting investments where and incentives where they are making the most impact. So we're tr- finally starting to light a fire under manufacturers. We saw a lot of um, action with the uh, the uh, act and the ICC in the transportation sector, you know, trying to and announcing that we're going to phase out internal combustion engine sales by a specific date. That sends a huge signal to the market, and it also the regulation is directly applied to manufacturers, and so that's an interesting way to solve a lot of our upstream supply chain problems that we haven't yet utilized in the building electrification space. So, I think that you know, if we can hopefully learn from that maybe not in a year, but in two years, then we'd be on a good path. They're going to let you guys keep coming back and doing this year after year.
1: Um, In some of these final moments that we have together, I want to think about going back to this, you know, this connection between energy efficiency and electrification. And thank you, Jesse, for saying it's the same thing, right? One of the things that I think we need to consider is that if we are as energy efficiency practitioners, going to be the leaders in electrification. If we're going to start doing electrification truly, meaningfully, and at a rate that gets us to where we need to go, we need to get out of an old mindset, right? Now, I think about it, and <clears throat> if you're a widget based person or you're an installer, you for years however many years we've all been doing this, you can rely on some certain truths, right? Like you know what the cost effectiveness is gonna be of measures, whether it's lighting or ash controls or whatever, right? Like you know the data, it tells you that and you can defend that. We still work in an efficiency world where 60% of the utilities portfolio is being implemented with TRC. Yes, we're moving to TSB, right? We're getting there but there are still cost-effectiveness and energy savings requirements that are put on people. How do we as energy efficiency practitioners get past our own need to defend the old measures and accept the installation of heat pump hot water heaters or other electrification measures? How do we convince people who look at only the bottom line and get them to say, no, that's where we're going? We're gonna make that investment and we're gonna go there. How do we get there, guys?
2: I mean, I have my ideas. Go for it, Lou, that's why you're here.
1: Um,
2: So I think there's a regulatory churn, and and this was spoken to earlier, and that regulatory churn will will catch up. And that's within the energy efficiency funding coming through the California Public Utilities Commission. But there's other funding out there um, that the Public Utility Commission um, is you know, working on and exploring. Um, investor-owned utilities are also looking at um, other ways of effectively using ratepayer funds to uh, decarbonize, and, and SoCal Edison um, did bring that up today in their, their presentation, um, and, and again, they're not here to discuss it, but other utilities are, are looking at um, new ways of approaching um, this challenge outside of the existing energy efficiency Portfolio. So I think there's a little bit of two things going on here, right? One is I think we're seeing, you know, a steady churn of regulation that is moving the needle towards this space. Um, and then in parallel, we have different, you know, proceedings within the Public Utilities Commission and different funding pipelines coming out of other regulatory bodies um, that have different constraints that are, are more readily accessible to deliver these services to disadvantaged communities, hard to reach rural communities. Um, and, and the general ratepayer class. And so I think that the solution here is, is not, it's not a singular solution. It's looking at multiple different solutions. Um, and at the end of the day, implementers within this, this regime will have to meet these very specific criteria until those criteria are changed. So that conversation has to be had. Implementers need to take risks. Um, they need to be able to um, embrace uncertainty and move forward acknowledging that this has to happen. Um, and, and that's broadly speaking as an individual, not representing an, any shop, um, but with that risk taking and w- with success, the hope would be others out there w- would see that there's a path forward to being successful that delivers value and benefit to the ratepayer. albeit the metric and the calculation for value might change down the road.
3: Yeah, maybe I'll just add to that. Like, there's we you shouldn't sit back and and stop defending those programs. I think the Lou mentioned this earlier, but it really is just an accounting change, and there is a calculation right now that energy efficiency isn't, or specifically reducing sort of electric load, isn't as relevant maybe uh, in the near term. But as we look, we do a lot of thinking at E3 around what's going to happen in 2045 and 2050 when we're trying to meet these really intense grid and climate goals. And we do start to see a lot of co- capacity constraints there. And you start the the sort of marginal cost then is installing a battery in downtown LA. And I guarantee you your energy efficiency programs will come in under that. So I think it's a, a matter of you know, at what time is this valuable. And just because today it maybe isn't as valuable because we have a surplus of storage or solar then that doesn't mean that it's not valuable in the future. And these programs, you can't just start and stop them on a whim, right? That's awesome. Thank you, guys.
1: Okay, so my very last question is for Jordan. Um, You said all of California is becoming a desert. And does that mean that you all are going to become dirt merchants? And does that leave me as your queen?
4: I would say I am a, uh, I would be a dirt jester. And, yes, you will always be my queen.
1: Thank you so much, Jordan. I appreciate you uh, indulging all of this always. Okay, so honestly, y'all, thank you so much. If you have closing thoughts that you want to get on, go ahead and drop them in.
3: We can take a minute. Anybody have anything? Plants crave electrolytes. They truly do.
0: I stand by my movie choice. And and I did watch
2: don't Don't Look Up. Oh, good. I did not
4: read, not, uh, what is it called? The Expanse. I didn't read The Expanse. I'm sorry. Uh, I know. I'm a terrible person. Listen. You,
1: nobody has time to watch all of The Expanse any longer. Uh, if you no. didn't watch it as it was going, like you lost your chance. That's well, now it I will
4: just because Courtney says something as ridiculous as that. Uh, look, I, we're, Rochelle, I agreed with your pick. I'm just saying that we are in it right now. We are, like, like uh, we were talking about, the lithium solution. We are the batteries already. It's going to be awesome. All right.
1: hey uh, Lou, you, you made your dream come true. You put together an amazing panel. Well done, my friends. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you all, everyone, for being with us today. Uh, we will make sure that this gets out to all of you once we have it in its final form. You guys are great. Thank you for indulging us. We appreciate all your time. It's cocktail time out there. I don't know.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch us on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at SJVCEO. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for more and visit sjvceo.com.